MAGA Mindset, How to Make You and America Great Again, by Mike Cernovich, read by Stefan Molyneux, host of Free Domain Radio. Introduction. What sort of madman releases a book about Donald Trump's campaign for presidency before the election is over? If Trump loses, you might be wondering, how will he make America and you great again? Those are fantastic questions. But, as you'll come to see as you read this book, whether he wins or loses, neither Trump nor the movement he has both inspired and ridden to the brink of the White House are simply going to disappear after November 8th, 2016. Donald Trump has launched a peaceful revolution by becoming the voice for over 100 million Americans. Trump is following the American people as much as the people are following him. Even the most ridiculously rigged polls against Trump put his support at 40%. Many polls suggest that as much as 55% of the nation supports Trump's actual policies and that their main issue with the man is with some of his personality quirks. Globalism, the destruction of the middle class, Wall Street's ownership of the federal government and the wars against men and free speech aren't going away. These battles have been going on for years, and only recently have the American people realized how high the stakes are for them. It's not a particular vision for America that is at stake, but the existence of America and the survival of the American people themselves. MAGA Mindset is not a traditional political analysis of Donald Trump or the success of his political campaign, which would be boring and useless to you. Instead, this book highlights some of the cultural forces that have propelled Trump forward while using the example of his candidacy as a case study for your own life. You will have a deeper understanding of America after reading this book. You'll also understand how truly terrible the media is, and you'll understand the reason for Trump's inevitable rise as well. And you'll understand why I was able to successfully predict Donald Trump would be the Republican nominee back when all the professional political pundits considered his campaign to be little more than a punchline for a joke. Above all else, you will possess the mindset tools you need to succeed. Regardless of what happens on November the 8th, 2016, you are going to have to live your life. We can't always control the outcomes of elections, but we can certainly control our own mindset. And, as the example of Donald Trump shows, he who controls his mindset controls his destiny. We have a lot of work to do. No one said making America and you great again would be easy. Let's get started. Mike Cernovich, Mission Vejo, California. Part 1. Culture. This book will not solve the great historical debate over whether history makes great men or great men make history. It will, however, demonstrate that Donald Trump did not rise to the Republican nomination for president through nothing more than his public speaking skills, his charisma, and the force of his will. His rise was also a consequence of the media's stranglehold on culture that has rendered the discussion of many important issues taboo. 
Only Donald Trump dared to hit the huge elephants in the room head on, while every other candidate in both major parties either ignored or evaded them. There are four engines driving the Trump train forward. First, Trump is a nationalist, so he puts America and American citizens first. Every other candidate in all four parties, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, and Green, is a globalist who does not care about the United States and is unwilling to give any priority to American workers over their foreign competitors. No less than the Democrats, the GOP is characterized by a desire to change the essential nature of the United States through unlimited immigration. While many Republicans in Congress may disagree with that assessment, their failure to take any non-defensive actions has already spoken much louder than their words. While they have defeated amnesty attempts by both the Bush and Obama administrations, they have taken no steps whatsoever toward restoring America's traditional demographic balance. Second, Trump has rejected the concept of white guilt. In the U.S. and throughout the West as a whole, whites are singled out as the evildoers of society. We've even seen social justice warriors claim that only whites are even capable of being racist because racism is prejudice plus power. That appears to be the only mathematical equations they're capable of constructing. They are certainly unaware of the historical one that states diversity plus proximity equals war. This societal disdain toward whites exists despite the fact that most cultures throughout history have committed atrocities far more intrinsically evil than anything whites have done. Moreover, whites were the first race to ban slavery, a practice that exists to this day in Africa, India, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and indeed most of the Middle East. 46 million people are enslaved today, which is more people than the entire American population, black and white, when slavery was abolished in the United States. Third, Trump is unapologetically masculine. For a society to function properly, there must be a proper balancing of feminine and masculine energy. Masculinity and femininity are complements, not substitutes. Women and men are neither superior nor inferior to each other. We are co-equals who have different strengths and weaknesses. Women grow human life. Men support human life. But if one were to judge by the newspaper headlines and public policies, one could not escape the impression that men are evil and that women can do no wrong. This is clearly not true. And Trump has unapologetically rejected the false narrative of the foot soldiers in the war on men. Thirdly, and finally, Trump has attacked political correctness and the thought police culture. Indeed, the three paragraphs above discussing nationalism, white guilt, and men are themselves politically incorrect. And in defying political correctness, Trump has made himself politically bulletproof. It's hard for the occasional gaffe and or failure to perfectly gauge public opinion to hurt a man who is famous for being blunt and saying whatever he happens to think at the moment.
nationalism versus globalism, the death of conservatism. Trump's rise has been met with a chorus of cries that he is not a true conservative, which is a charge that has been made about every Republican frontrunner since Richard Nixon, including Ronald Reagan. The once prestigious National Review devoted an entire issue to complaining about Trump and attempting to rationalize Republican opposition to him. Titled Against Trump, the issue primarily consisted of attacks from a broad spectrum of members of the conservative establishment, from pro-war neocons such as Bill Kristol and John Poderetz to members of the religious right like Russell Moore, as well as media whores Dana Loach and the mentally unstable Glenn Beck. National Review editor Rich Lowry described it this way. We got a strong representative of the religious right, Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist Convention, and a dyed-in-the-wool libertarian, David Boas of the Cato Institute. We pulled together popular voices from the Tea Party right, like Glenn Beck, Dana Loach, and Eric Erickson, who combined their powerful journalism with activism along with editors of long-standing conservative magazines, like John Potteretz of Commentary, R.R. Reno of First Things, and Bill Crystal of The Weekly Standard. We balanced a Reagan hand present at the creation, former Reagan Attorney General Ed Meese, with 27-year-old Katie Pavlich of Town Hall. Inside the Against Trump issue, Politico, January 23, 2016. What against Trump and other conservative media attacks failed to do was define conservatism. No one has been able to explain why waging wars on foreign soils or increasing federal spending more than any president since Lyndon B. Johnson, as George W. Bush did, was conservative. No one has explained how socialized medicine, which Mitt Romney enacted as governor of Massachusetts, is conservative. Obamacare is modeled after Romneycare, for Christ's sake, but few of the same people attacking Trump hesitated before rallying behind Mitt Romney as the Republican candidate in 2012. But the fact is that Trump is not a true conservative, because conservatism in the U.S. is dead. Since Reagan, when have we had a conservative president? Certainly neither Bush the Elder nor Bush the Younger meets the criteria. When is the last time Republicans even ran a conservative candidate for president? Neither John McCain nor Mitt Romney were conservatives either. And what has conservatism conserved anyhow? It has not conserved America or the U.S. Constitution. It has not even conserved the ladies' rooms. Trump is not a conservative. Trump is a nationalist, which is a loaded term that is worthy of definition. Nationalism is a concept that is derived from the root word nation. A nationalist puts the interests of his own country, and by extension his countrymen, above the interests of other nations. A nationalist puts America first. Nationalists will work with other countries, but only when doing so is in the best interest of the United States of America. You would think that the President of the United States would, by definition, be a nationalist. The nation 
is in the title of the job description, after all. Yet mainstream conservatives have gradually drifted away from nationalism and toward globalism. To a globalist, Americans are no different than Nigerians, Mexicans, or Turks. Globalists believe that if someone in a foreign land is able to do a job cheaper than an American worker can, then those jobs should be offshored. According to globalists, Americans do not deserve to exist as a unique national identity, although it's another story for everyone else. Globalists, therefore, favor open borders, despite the obvious consequences to the people living inside those invisible lines in the sand. Globalism pushes Americans out of jobs at the lowest rungs of the economic ladder, reduces their wages, and imports criminality and disease. Yes, immigrants are taking the most undesirable jobs, but they're doing so at the expense of young Americans and the American poor. One example of a globalist conservative is Marco Rubio, the darling of conservative elites who sought to open America's borders even further. As part of the Gang of Eight, a political alliance named after the eight United States senators who joined forces to push through an immigration amnesty under the name of Comprehensive Immigration Reform, Rubio also sought to increase the number of migrants from Syria from a few thousand to several million. That the migrants from Syria tend to be overwhelmingly men of prime fighting age means nothing to Rubio or other globalists. In the globalist worldview, America has no right to exist as a nation. Trump rejected globalism with a powerful statement. Build the wall. Aside from the literal meaning of erecting a border between the United States and Mexico to prevent tens of millions of illegal immigrants, including drug dealers and Islamic terrorists, from entering America, the phrase is a symbol. Building the wall is a powerful symbol of nationalism. It sends a powerful message that America has a right to exist in its own right. What is a nation without borders after all? It is nothing. A nation cannot exist without a border, Trump declared. A nation is defined by its borders because a nation is its people. A nation is not a government, a flag, or even a state. A nation is a people. When you allow the entry of people who refuse to assimilate into American culture or who outright hate American values such as freedom of speech, free enterprise, and religious tolerance, you change the foundation of the nation and you change it for the worse. At this point in time, most mainstream conservatives are globalists. They believe Americans do not have a right to exist as a people and that America does not have the right to exist as a nation. Some may call that statement extreme, but if you refuse to define your borders or control who is permitted to immigrate to America, as they do everywhere from Israel to Australia, including Mexico, 
which deports more Central American illegals than we do, how can you possibly claim to be pro-American? Nationalism works. Just look at another nationalist, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, who has openly praised Trump. When the American media reported that Putin's approval ratings were down, keep in mind that they had fallen 8 points to 82%. By contrast, Gallup reports Obama's average approval rating for the duration of his term in office to be 47%. Hillary Clinton's approval ratings are even worse, at 38%. The people of a nation desperately want their leaders to be nationalists. After all, they are electing those leaders in order to further their own interests. Populism and the free trade lie. Nationalism is the belief that nations like Israel and the USA have a right to self-determination. And populism is the view that a nation's domestic and foreign policy should benefit all Americans, rather than a tiny sliver of special interest donors and megacorporations. Mainstream conservatism rejects populism on the grounds that billionaire donors matter more than ordinary, hard-working Americans do. Conservatives preach that America, as part of a global economy, must support free trade. Free trade is why mainstream conservatives support the offshoring of American jobs, as well as treaties like NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and more recently, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. Yet what they sell as free trade is free trade in name only. So-called free trade agreements consist of hundreds of pages spelling out highly specific rules and regulations that will govern over each nation's trade. That's a negotiated form of corporatism, not free trade. Real wages for American workers haven't risen over the past four decades. Real wages for American workers have barely budged since the early 1970s with compensation increasingly coming in the form of fringe benefits due to rising health care costs. Take the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, as an example. Five million manufacturing jobs have been lost since NAFTA was enacted. Now, Some of those job losses weren't due to the agreement because as the manufacturing sector becomes more efficient, employment will naturally shrink regardless. But all you have to do is type Manufacturing Employment US into Google to find a whole series of charts showing manufacturing employment dropping off like a rock from the year 2000 onward. Sure, many of those who lost manufacturing jobs found employment elsewhere, but almost all of them were found in lower-paying professions. Think about that for a second. It's not going to be cost-effective for older workers who lost their jobs to pay for the education needed to train them for another profession since they have fewer years to recoup their investment than younger workers. And while younger workers will be able to adapt to the new working environment with more ease, remember that we're now in an economy where a bachelor's degree is the equivalent of the old high school diploma, the bare minimum required for a job. 
Do you think that would be the case if we had more manufacturing jobs? Of course not. Globalist conservatives and economists ignore this problem by claiming economic growth should be measured by gross domestic product, or GDP. GDP is a measure of all economic activity which consists of consumption, investment, government spending, and net exports. It doesn't take into account the way in which that economic activity is distributed across the population. Just because GDP is increasing doesn't mean its benefits are distributed evenly. If Bill Gates walks into a bar, the average wealth of every person in that room increases by billions of dollars. But no one has actually added so much as one single dollar to his pocket. Even Obama had to admit that 95% of the economic gains that occurred during this most recent economic recovery went to the top 1% of income earners. The rich got richer thanks to his $787 billion spending program. No one else did. How did that benefit America? How did that benefit Americans? Similarly, government spending can artificially boost GDP when nothing of value has been created. For example, if the government spent $100 on a bagel instead of $1.50, that purchase would increase GDP by $100. If the government pays someone $15 an hour to dig a hole and fill it back up, that will boost GDP too. In fact, the more inefficient a government worker is at his job, the more GDP will be boosted. That's because... By definition, all government spending increases GDP. As you can probably see by now, globalist conservatives do not care about American workers. They don't give a damn about Americans. To them, Americans are not their fellow citizens, but instead are disposable widgets to be used until broken. Even better is to never hire American workers at all, but instead offshore all jobs in the global marketplace to countries that lack the same level of rules and regulations that our politicians have imposed upon American citizens. Unlike the globalist conservatives, Trump has consistently prioritized American workers in his speeches and in his campaign promises. We will bring jobs home to the U.S., he said on multiple campaign occasions. Trump has even directly criticized U.S. companies whose actions have harmed their American workers. When Nabisco announced plans to relocate a factory in Chicago to Mexico, Trump said that he would never eat another Oreo again. When Disney replaced hundreds of American workers for cheaper foreign workers, Trump spoke out on behalf of Americans, stating... I am calling today on Disney to hire back every one of the workers they replaced. He continued in that vein when he took a jab at Marco Rubio for co-sponsoring the I Squared Act, which would have opened the floodgates to foreign workers. Among other keys to explaining Trump's inexplicable rise is his reaffirmation of the American identity. For decades, the liberal bourgeois treated American as a bad word, 
and acted as if the nationalism it represents was akin to Nazism or something even worse. We are global citizens, they would tell us. Unfortunately for them, most Americans aren't buying it. No one ever really did. They were just intimidated into silence. If even powerful conservatives in leadership positions were afraid to be unapologetically pro-American, how could they speak up in defense of their nation? I've always known this myself, having grown up among those possessing a strong American identity and real sense of pride in our country. You don't have to dig deep to find articles that explain what Trump supporters like most about their candidate. They identify with him as a real American. They don't see him as a manufactured, poll-tested puppet like Mitt Romney or Hillary Clinton or alien imposter like Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or a globalist sellout like Jeb Bush. Naturally, many pundits took offense to Trump's triumph of the American will. Among them is establishment Republican David Frum a distant cousin of establishment Democrat Paul Krugman, who penned a piece following Sarah Palin's endorsement of Trump, declaring her support to be an alliance of the aggrieved. The article's subtitle described her endorsement as a bet on the triumph of identity over ideology. In the piece, from writes, What defined Sarah Palin was an identity as a real American and her conviction that she was slighted and insulted and persecuted because of this identity. That's exactly the same feeling to which Donald Trump speaks and which has buoyed his campaign. When he's president, he tells voters, department stores will say Merry Christmas again in their advertisements. Probably most of his listeners would know, if they considered it, that the President of the United States does not determine the ad copy for Walmart and Nordstrom's. They still appreciate the thought he's one of us and he's standing up for us against all of them at a time when we feel weak and poor and beleaguered and they seem more numerous, more dangerous and more aggressive. In fact, as Republicans in office continue to remind us that they're conservative in name only, part of Trump's appeal comes from the fact that he isn't simply preaching the same old brand of republicanism we're used to hearing. Ann Coulter put it more eloquently than I ever could when she wrote, Looking at what the party has become, I certainly hope he's not a real republican. I know he's a real American. Those used to be the same thing. And that's your preview, people. Thank you so much for listening and watching to this excerpt, this introduction to MAGA Mindset by Mike Cernovich, read by Stefan Molyneux, host of Free Domain Radio. To order this book, please go to fdrurl.com slash MAGA, M-A-G-A. That's fdrurl.com slash MAGA. The links are all below. Thank you so much for watching and listening.